Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the best podcast ever. As you can hear by my happy voice, I'm in such a good mood. I'm not feeling any murderous rage like our friend Julian might. Um, I just recorded this episode and then Reaper, the recording program, decided not to give any indication that it wasn't working properly, but instead to just record the whole episode with glitches and noises all the way through. So thanks, Reaper. Thanks. Thanks for not working and also giving no indication that you're not working. I just wasted so long because yesterday's chapter was a really good one and so there was a lot of discussion about it. Um, And then today's chapter is a bit of a long one, so that took a while to read. So it was a bloody long podcast, and I was like, look, yesterday was like the chapter, so I'm going to really have a good discussion about it, and let's uh, have a good chit-chat. So it was like a a long episode. I think it was like more than half an hour. Now it's two in the morning. I've just had to restart my computer, and because it's an old Mac, that took about 45 minutes. Ah, I'm so angry. (laughs) I'm so... If if tonight was Madame de Renal, I would shoot it tonight in the head. That made no sense, but I think you know what I mean. You probably don't, but who cares? All right, I'm rambling. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm waiting for this page to load because now apparently everything's in slow motion because now I'm trying to do it as quickly as possible. So my computer's just being like, oh, well... You just turned me on, so I'm going to need like five minutes to do everything that you ask me to do, because I'm a dickhead. I'm in such a good mood. By the way, um, while this loads for the next 20 to 30 minutes, um, where I'm at in uh, Melbourne, we've just gone to stage four lockdowns, which means I've got a curfew. I'm not allowed to leave my house after 8 p.m., the only shops that are open are like grocery stores and doctors or like essential things like that. Uh, no retails open, no bars, no cafes, no anything. You name it. It's all closed. Everything's closed. Uh, you're only allowed to leave the house one person per at a time from the household. Uh, all schools are closed. Everything's closed. You're only allowed to exercise for up to one hour per day and you have to do it within a five kilometer radius of your house. You're not allowed to go at all further than five kilometers from your house. Look, I'm not bitching about this lockdown. Like, I'm not saying it was bad for them to do it. It was the right move. Um, All I'm saying is life is a big bag of dicks right now. (laughs) To say it lightly. Um, all right, let's talk about book two, chapter 35, what the actual F, and good luck failing up upwards from this one, Julian. Starfall says, sometimes it's more enjoyable to read a story knowing where it's all headed. As I mentioned yesterday, this is my second read, and I picked up on hints foreshadowing this time. I quite enjoyed all your comments about his failing upwards. This whole story is based on fate divers. It inspired Sinatra to write it. Probably if you haven't looked it up, wait till the end because of spoilers. One minor thing that annoyed me is that Stendhal should 
have had Madame de Renal in Paris instead of having him ride all the way to Verrières. He is quite impulsive, as we have witnessed earlier, but a ride for one or two days should have given him time to think it over. I would say that he can uphold his impulsiveness for one or two days. You know, he's going to be incensed with this idea of what he's going to do. Um, sure, I can see him doing that. All right, I'm going to skip some of the comments right now because I've just read them all uh, and I want to go to bed at some point tonight. Hey, hopefully when I get to the end of this reading, um, Reaper will have recorded it and not just recorded a bunch of noises. I won't know though till the end because that's how good life is. Yay. Um, I did do a little test and it seems to be working. So, um, yippee-ki-yay, etc. This chapter is called Melancholy Details. I've just read it. Let's read it again. Don't look for any weakness on my part. I have taken my revenge. I deserve death, and here I am. Pray for my soul, Schiller. Julian stood quite still, seeing nothing more. When he recovered himself somewhat, he became aware of the whole congregation fleeing. The church, the priest, had left the altar. Julian began to walk quite slowly behind some women who were crying aloud as they went. One woman, anxious to get out faster than the others, pushed roughly into him and he fell down. His feet were caught by a chair, knocked over in the crowd. Getting up again, he felt a pressure on his shoulder. It was a gendarme in full uniform arresting him. Automatically, he tried to get at the pocket pistols, but a second gendarme pinned his arms. He was taken to prison. They entered a room. Handcuffs were put on and he was left alone, the door being double locked on him. All this was accomplished very quickly and he was barely conscious of it. Heavens, it is all over then, he said to himself quite loudly as he, became, as he came to his senses. Yes, in a fortnight, the guillotine, or killing myself between now and then. His thoughts stopped there. His head felt as though it had been violently compressed. He looked to see if anyone was holding him. After a few minutes, he lapsed into a profound sleep. Madame de Renal had not been mortally wounded. The first ball had pierced her hat. The second shot was loosed off as she turned. The ball had struck her on the shoulder and astonishingly had been deflected by the shoulder blade, which had nonetheless been shattered against a gothic pillar from which it chipped an enormous stone splinter. When, after a long and painful dressing of the wound, the surgeon gave the surgeon a grave individual, said to Madame de Renal that I would answer for your life as I would for my own, she was deeply afflicted. For a long time she had sincerely desired death. The writing of that letter to Monsieur de la Mole, which had imposed on her by her current confessor, had given the final jolt to a soul enfeebled by constant insistent, insistent suffering. This suffering was derived from the absence of Julian, her own name for it being remorse. The confessor, a virtuous and fervent young priest, newly arrived from Dijon, was not deceived. To die in such a way, but not by my own hand, thought Madame de Renal, is in no sense a sin. God will perhaps even pardon me for rejoicing in my death. And she dare not complete her thought that to die by Julian's hand would be the height of felicity. Hardly was she rid of the surgeon's presence or of all the friends who had crowded to her, than she called in Eliza, her lady's maid. The jailer, she said to her, blushing deeply, is a cruel man. No doubt he will ill-treat him, thinking that would somehow be agreeable to me. The thought of it is unbearable. Could you not go to him as from yourself and give him this little packet with a few louis in it? You could say that religion forbids him, that he ill-treats him. But above all, he is not to go round talking about money he has been sent. 
It was the aforementioned transaction that Julian owed his humane treatment by the jailer at Verrieres. This was still Monsieur Noirod, that perfect ministerial appendage, who we have seen being given a, such a fine fright by the appearance of Monsieur Apert. A magistrate appeared at the prison. I have caused death and with premeditation, Julian told him. I bought the pistols and had them loaded by Monsieur Dash, the gunsmith. Article 1342 of the penal code is clear. I deserve death. I expect it. The magistrate, astonished by this kind of repose, wished to multiply his questions so as to get the accused to implicate himself by his answers. But don't you see, said Julian, smiling, that I am making myself as guilty as you could possibly desire? Go away, monsieur. You won't miss the prey you are after. You will find the pleasure of my passing my sentence. But for now, spare me your presence. There remains one troublesome duty to perform, thought Julian. I must write to Mon Mademoiselle de la Mole. I have avenged myself, he told her. Unfortunately, my name will appear in the newspapers and I shall not be able to depart this world incognito. In two months I shall die. The revenge was atrocious, as is my the misery of being separate from you. From this moment I forbid myself to write to pronounce your name. Never speak of me, not even to my son. Silence is the only way to honour me. With the common herd I will go down as an ordinary assassin. At this supreme moment allow me to tell you the truth. You will forget me. This great catastrophe about which I advise you never to say a word to a living soul will have exhausted for years to come all the romantic and highly adventurous elements I have observed in your nature. You were made to live with the heroes of the Middle Ages. Now show their firmness of character. What is about to take place should be gone through in secret without compromising you. You will take a false name and confide in no one. If the help of a friend is absolutely necessary, I bequeath you a parade. Talk to absolutely no one, above all, not to people of your own class, the deluces of Caluses. A year after my death, marry Monsieur de Cruzner. I beg this of you. As your husband, I order it. Do not write to me. I should not reply. Much less wicked as it seems to me than Iago, I will say with him. From this time forth, I never will speak word. No one will ever see me speak or write. You have my last words as you have my last adoring thoughts. J.S. It was after dispatching this letter that Julian, having recovered himself a little, felt extremely miserable for the first time. One by one, each of his ambitious aspirations had to be torn from his heart in succession with the powerful sentence, I'm going to die. Death in itself was not horrible to him. His whole life had been nothing but a long preparation for misfortunes, and he had made sure never to neglect that which passes for the greatest of them all. What of that? He said to himself. If I was due to fight a great duelist sixty days from now, should I be so feeble as to constantly dwell on it, my soul trembling in terror? He spent an hour, or more, trying to achieve a full understanding of himself on, in this matter. When he had seen clearly into his soul, and when the truth stood in front of his eyes as precisely as one of his prison bars, he began to think about remorse. Why should I feel any? I've been atrociously wronged. I've killed. I deserve death. But that is the sum of it. I, I die having made up my accounts with mankind. I leave no obligation unfulfilled. I owe nothing to anyone. My death has nothing dishonorable about it except as regards its instrument. That by nat itself, it is true, will richly suffice to shame me in the eyes of the townsfolk of Verriers. But to the eyes of the intellect, what could be more contemptible? And one way remains to me of winning their regard, to throw pieces of gold to the people as I go to the scaffold. My memory linked with the idea of gold will be glorious to them. Following this piece of reasoning, which after a moment's consideration seemed to have evidently true, and I have nothing more to do on earth, Julian told himself, and fell into a deep sleep. About nine that evening the jailer woke him, bringing in his supper. What are they saying in Verriers? Monsieur Julian, the oath that I took in front of the crucifix in the king's court the day... 
I was installed in my office compels my silence. He said no more but lingered there. The sight of this vulgar hypocrite amused Julian. I must make him wait a long time, he thought, for the five francs he wants as the price of his conscience. When the jailer saw the meal finished without any attempt at bribery, the friendship I feel for you, Monsieur Julian, he said in a false soft voice, compels me to speak, though people do say it is against the interests of justice, for it might help you to set up your defence. Monsieur Julian, who is a good young gentleman, will be pleased if I tell him that Madame de Renal is recovering well. What's that? She's not dead, shouted Julian in complete astonishment. Ah, you knew nothing about it, cried the jailer with a stupid air that fast became one of happy greed. It would only be fair that Monsieur should give a little something to the surgeon who, according to the justice and the law, ought not to say anything. But to oblige Monsieur, I have been to see him. He has told me everything. All right, yes, yes. Then the wound is not mortal, cried Julian, losing patience. Can you answer for that on your life? The jailer, a giant, six foot, took fright and retreated towards the door. Julian realised that he had adopted the wrong route to get to the truth, seated himself against and threw a Napoleon in Monsieur Norred's direction. As the man's account began to convince Julian that Madame de Renal's wound was indeed not fatal, he felt himself being overcome by tears. Leave me, he said brusquely. The jailer obeyed. Hardly had the door closed that Julian cried out, Great God, so she isn't dead, and he fell to his knees, shedding warm tears. Tears. In this supreme moment, he became a believer. What matter the hypocrisies of priests? Can they detract anything from the truth, the sublimity of the concept of God? Only then did Julian begin to repent the crime he had committed, only at that very point, by a coincidence which rescued him from despair, was he relieved from the state of physical restlessness and near madness into which he had been plunged since his departure from Paris for Verrieres. His tears flowed from a generous spring, he had no doubt, no doubts at all of the sentence that awaited him. So, she will live, he said to himself, she will live to forgive me and to love me. Very late next morning, when the jailer awoke him, you must have terrific nerves, Monsieur Julien, the man said to him, I believe, sorry, I have been in twice already and did not like to wake you. Here are two bottles of first-rate wine sent you by our curé, Monsieur Maslon. What, the scoundrels still around, said Julian. Yes, Monsieur, answered the jailer, lowering his voice, but don't speak so loud, it might do you some harm. Julian laughed heartily. At the stage I have reached, my friend, you are the only one who could do me harm if you stopped being kind and gentle. You'll be paid well enough, said Julian, interrupting himself and reassuming an imperious air. The air was immediately justified by the gift of a piece of money. Monsieur Neurod told over again in the greatest detail all he had learned about Madame de Renal, but he did not mention Mademoiselle Eliza's visit. The man was as servile and humble as it was possible to be. An idea crossed Julian's mind. This misshapen giant of a fellow must earn only three or four hundred francs, for his prison isn't at all busy. I can promise him ten thousand if he is willing to flee to Switzerland with me. The difficulty would be to convince him of my good faith. The idea of conducting a long colloquy with so vile a being filled Julian with disgust, and his thoughts strayed elsewhere. By that evening it was too late. At midnight a post-chase came to fetch him. He was much pleased with the guard arms who escorted him on his journey. When they had arrived at the prison in Bezacon next morning, they were good enough to lodge him in the upper story of the Gothic keep. He judged the architecture to be one of the four early 14th century. He admired its grace and pointed lightness. Through a narrow gap between two walls on the far side of a deep court, he glimpsed a wonderful view. The next day there was an interrogation, after which he was left in peace for several days. His spirit was calm. He saw nothing in this case that was not straightforward. I intended to kill. I deserved to be killed. 
He thought to do not dwell longer on this argument. The trial, the tiresomeness of appearing in public, the defence, he thought of all these as slight embarrassments, as tedious ceremonies about which there would be time to think when the time came. The moment of death gave him no greater pause. I will think about that after the trial. Life was not at all tedious to him. He looked at everything in a new light and no longer felt any ambition. He rarely thought about Mademoiselle de la Mole. He was greatly preoccupied by his remorse and often conjured up the image of Madame, Madame de Renal before his eyes, above all in the silence of the night, disturbed in this high keep only by the memory of the eagle owl. He thanked heaven that he had not dealt her a mortal wound. How amazing, he said to himself. I believed that with her letter to Monsieur de la Mole she destroyed all my future happiness, and now, less than a fortnight after the date of the letter, I no longer give a thought to any of the things that concerned me then. An income of two or three thousand libras to live out a quiet life in some mountainous retreat like Vergy. I was happy then, and I did not realize my own happiness. At other moments he leapt out of his chair. If I have given Mademoiselle, Madame de Renal a mortal wound, I would have killed myself. I need to be sure of that so as not to be horrified by myself. Killing myself, that is a great question, he thought. These formalistic magistrates, so fierce in pursuit of the poor accused, and who would hang the best of citizens to get their claws on a cross, I would escape from their power, escape from their insults, dressed up in bad French, that the local paper would call eloquence. I may live five or six weeks longer, more or less, kill myself. Good heavens, no, he said to himself a few days later, Napoleon lived on. Besides, life is pleasant. This is a tranquil staging place. I have nothing to bore me here, he added, laughing, and he started making a note of the books he wanted sent from Paris. All right, there we go, another chapter down. Hopefully, my recording software recorded that this time. Thank you for listening, and I will see you tomorrow.